how in the world are we going to get through three, uh, three letters of TULIP? I don't know the answer to that. We're going to try our best. Um, okay, so... Uh, let me pray for us and we'll jump right in. Father in heaven, thank you so much for bringing us here together. Lord, it's so fun to be in the mountains with this wonderful group of students and leaders. And Lord, we pray that your uh, goodness and kindness would be made known to us. Thank you for writing a story of salvation that's secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would reach out to him and, uh, and hold fast to what he's done for us. Lord God, I pray that you would open our hearts, help us to receive the word that you are giving us this morning. Help me to communicate effectively and clearly uh, these difficult topics. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, limited atonement. Here we go. We've covered total depravity, which means that you ain't going to go to God because you sinner. You're a sinner. You're not going to go to God. You're a sinner. Uh, We've covered uh, unconditional election that God then has to decide I am going to redeem a people for myself and so before the foundation of the world has chosen a people for himself and now we get to the L limited atonement which is saying ultimately that God has sent his son to therefore secure the salvation in his death and resurrection of those people whom he has elected so God the father elects a people to himself God the son is now sent to earth to die die for and redeem a people for himself. Did that girl want to come in through the back door? <laughs> That's funny. Um, um, yeah, strike that from the record. So, limited atonement. Christ's atoning death was effectual for the elect. That's a fancy way of saying Christ died for the salvation of the elect and the elect only. Christ's death truly and actually absorbed God's wrath against them and secured their salvation. The question is, did Jesus come to make salvation possible or did Jesus come to actually save? The way that I said that loaded the answer to the question, in my opinion. Jesus came to save. Jesus didn't come to simply make salvation possible. Okay, so um, the uh, uh, an image that I will probably return back to is Jesus is in a boat. Here's the image or an illustration. Jesus is in a boat and he's throwing out life jackets to people. He's throwing out life jackets to people. That's the image. And if you're an Arminian, you'd say those people are spiritually sick but not spiritually dead. So it's up to them to reach out and grab a life jacket and become saved. That's their faith, right? They're going to reach out, grab a life jacket, and be saved. The problem is is that we don't have spiritually sick people who are drowning. We have spiritually dead people who have drowned. And so Jesus throwing out the life jacket of his death is not going to save anyone. What Jesus has to do is he has to dive into the water and go and take that person who, is at, who, is, who has drowned below the ocean and bring them up into the boat and resuscitate them, regenerate them, and bring them to life. So did Jesus' death make it possible to be saved? By which the Calvinist would say, then therefore no one would be saved? Or did Jesus' death actually secure the salvation of his people? Um, biblically speaking, biblically speaking, we're going we're gonna to talk about this in a couple of ways. Um, we're going to talk about it. We're going to say this: Jesus' death was limited to paying for the sins of his people. It makes sense biblically. It makes sense theologically, and it makes sense logically. We're going to use those three categories to talk about it. Um, and then I'll come back 
yeah, we're going to use those three categories to talk about it. Let's start with it makes sense biblically. I'm not going to give you a ton of verses, but I'm going to give you some. Jesus' name is Jesus. He will be called Jesus. Why? Does anyone remember Matthew 1, 21? Because he will save his people from their sins. So who does Jesus save from their sins? His people. So Jesus has been sent to save his people from their sins. Okay? So John chapter 10, verse 11 and following. This would be a good place for you to go. The argument is a little, is strong here. This is Jesus speaking. This is not, um, you know, Jesus is speaking to a group of, uh, of people who consist of uh, a, a bunch of different Jews, so some of his disciples, but also the Pharisees, and it looks like the Sadducees are there. Um, so Jesus speaks, says this in John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Who does the good shepherd lay down his life for? The sheep. Good. Now, skipping on to verse 14, he repeats, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. Then skipping on to verse 26, he's speaking now to the leaders, and he says this, But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. Who does Jesus lay down his life for? The sheep. Are there some people who are not his sheep? Yes. Yes. According to this discourse, Jesus is pointing out some people and saying, you are not my sheep. Now, there's an important important part in this passage here, and an important logical, um, uh, uh, an important kind of like grammatical construction here. He says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. The reason for some people's unbelief is because they are not among the sheep. Okay, It's important that Jesus says it this way for this doctrine, because if he said it the other way, it could, it could change things. So what would it be the other way? You are not my sheep because you do not believe. Now if Jesus says you are not my sheep because you, are, you do not believe, it could stand to reason that if you begin to believe, you would become one of Jesus' sheep, right? The possibility there that you could change from whatever you were, a goat maybe, into a sheep. But Jesus doesn't say that. And it's important that he doesn't say that for this doctrine. And just because it's what Jesus says, and we build our doctrine out of what Jesus in the Bible says, right? He says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Which means the grounds of your belief is the fact that you are my sheep and I lay down my life for you. So we know that the, that the atonement of Christ, his laying down his life, is limited in some way. Right? It's limited. Jesus is laying down his life for a group of people called the sheep. And there, are, there is another group of people. An indeterminate, in this case, amount of people. We're not sure who they are or anything like that that are not among his sheep. Okay. We... Um, 
I think those are the, those are the, you know, that's a really big one there. And I think you spending some time thinking about that one and wrestling with that one would be really important for you. In other, um, in other places, we see, well, who are these sheep that Jesus has lay, lays down his life for? And an answer to that is that the sheep that Jesus lays down his life for are the uh, are his people, Matthew one twenty one, who are collected into this gathering called the church. So we see in Acts twenty twenty eight, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock to feed the church of the Lord, which he obtained for himself with his own blood. Who did he obtain with his own blood? The church, the flock, his people. Good. I love how it has flock and church in that same, right there. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. So, I'm going to go, I'll go into other places, we'll, we'll do other passages in a second, but I wanted us to have those, firstly, those biblical grounds, at least a couple of passages, biblically to say, okay, Jesus died for his sheep. He died to obtain his people. He died for his church. And, um, and we want to then take those passages and say, okay, does this comport then theologically? Does this fit with what's happening in the Bible as a whole, theologically? And we're going to say, yes, it does seem to fit with, God, with what God is doing in salvation. And here's why. God, we've established that God the Father elects a people. Right? God the Father elects a people. We will talk about in a second that God the Spirit applies salvation to a people. We'll deal with that in a second. And then we say, well, theologically speaking, it makes sense that Jesus dies for the elect people of God. We've got a major theological problem if we say that God elects a people and then Jesus dies for some other people or a bigger group of people than the Father has elected. That would be to introduce confusion in the Trinity. Remember, it's not that there are three gods. How many gods are there? One. And this one God has a will. One will. That is shared by the persons of the Trinity. We need to be careful about this and the way that we talk about the Trinity. But it's one will. The will of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to elect, redeem, and apply salvation to a people. It would be in... It would be in Conceivable that the Father says, Hey, Son and Spirit. We don't want to anthropomorphize God too much, but it's as important to think through this. Hey, Son and Spirit, there's a people out there that are my people. I'm going to elect them. I'm, we've elected them, okay? We, we, you know, those are my elect people. And the Son says, Well, I want to get him more people. I want to do more people. That's just inconceivable. So the, the Father says, I've elected this people. The Son says, it is my gracious pleasure to do your will, O Lord. I will go and redeem those people. The Holy Spirit says, it is my gracious pleasure to do your will. I will go and apply the salvation to those people. Theologically speaking, if we, enter, if we, if we have a God who is confused about who his elect are, then we've entered into a place that we just cannot go in the Trinity, dividing the Trinity again, over and against each other, so to speak. It doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. So, we see that the Father authors your salvation. He plans it. He predestines it. He elects you. The Son accomplishes your salvation. He secures it. The Spirit applies your salvation. He takes what Jesus has done and personalizes it to you. He applies it to your life. Brings it into you. 
into your life. So, um, then logically speaking, this also works. This also makes sense. The atonement is limited in that Jesus did not die for everybody. It is limited in that Jesus did not die to everybody, uh, for everybody. He was able to save everybody, of course, but it was only effectual for those whom the Father gave the Son. Right? The Father says, these are mine, go get them. So Calvinists limit the atonement to a specific group of people. But there's a problem in an Arminian position, too. There's a problem in our Arminian position. I say problem because it, it's always hard to hear that word that the atonement is limited. That's hard, right? We don't want to. We, we want to think of Jesus's death as is huge, and it is. But an Arminian limits the atonement in in ways as well. Where the Calvinist limits the atonement of Jesus, the Calvinist limits it in the sense of the scope. I have died fully and completely for my people but I've only died for my people. So the limit is in the scope or the amount of people that he's died for. The Arminian also limits the atonement in some way. Here's how the Arminian limits the atonement. The Arminian has to say that Jesus died for all people. So he doesn't limit it in scope, but he can't say that he paid for every single sin of every single person. The reason that he can't say that is because if Jesus died for every single sin of every single person, then who would be saved? Everyone. Does that comport with the biblical evidence? No, we know that not everyone is saved. We know that there's a place called hell. We know that there's destruction. So John Owen, in his uh, John Owen's uh, 16th century Puritan, he says this, uh, there's only really three options you have to make sense of Jesus' atonement. Number one, Christ died for all the sins of all men, which means that all would be saved. And that obviously doesn't work with what the Bible tells us about salvation. Some are saved, not all. So you've got a second one. Christ died for some of the sins of all men. Okay, that's, that's, uh, this is that... If, okay, so if Christ died, let's just think logically. If Christ died for some of the sins of everyone, who would be saved? No one. Why? Yeah, because one sin, what's the wages of sin? Death, right? So if there's still some sins against you, you what are you going to ask God to do? God, will you just kind of like divine fiat get rid of them? Will, you, will my good works outweigh some of those bad sins? Well, there's no other means or mechanism by, by which you'll be saved because it's Jesus that saves and nothing else. So how do you get rid of some of those sins that are still on you? Is unbelief a sin? Yeah, unbelief is a sin, right? So even if Jesus died for all of the sins except for unbelief, that is still a sin that needs to in some way be atoned for or punished, right? So option two, Christ died for some of the sins of all men, which would mean that no one is saved. The only logical option that you have left, which is also the biblical option, Christ died for all of the sins of some men, some men and women. Excuse me, which would mean that those he died for are actually saved. Those he died for are actually saved. Now, a an Armenian. Uh, so there's a there's a uh, Armenian theologian by the name of Ken Greider. He recognizes this logical conundrum, the logical conundrum of the Armenian, and so he gets this. He, he realizes that. If Jesus' death was 
a substitute for you, right? And okay, pause, let's hit the pause button. If when we talk, when we look at Jesus's death, we say that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin in your place, right? Um, even like John Wesley, who is a who is an ultimately a Romanian, would say that, and we talked about that in the my first class on the first day. Even John's like, yeah, Jesus is a, he's a, is a, he took our sin on himself. There was a record of debt. So, right, if like, if all of you had a rap sheet that only God could see and your rap sheets, you know, like lying to parents, hitting my brother, like in just all those, Jesus, if you have a rap sheet, Colossians says he nailed your rap sheet, Colossians 2 verse 14, he nailed your rap sheet on the cross that Jesus died for all of those sins for you. He is the substitute. He took the penalty for you. That's what the, the scriptures say over and over again. So if, if that's true about what the scriptures say, and Jesus took everybody's rap sheet, then everyone would be saved. But that's just not the case. So this Arminian theologian gets this. He says, he says this, Arminians teach that what Christ did, he did for every person. Therefore, what he did could not have been to pay the penalty since no one would then ever go to eternal perdition. So you see what he does here. He recognizes that if Jesus died for the penalty of all men, then everyone would be saved. And so consistent Arminians then have to deny something that is very biblical about the atonement, that it is a penal substitutionary atonement. That Jesus didn't ultimately take the penalty of your sin and he has to have a different way of thinking about the atonement so at first i only gave you like five verses i only gave you like five verses for limited atonement i could now give you a million verses for limited atonement because all i have to do is show you that jesus actually paid the penalty for your sin if i show you that jesus actually paid the penalty for your sin in scripture then you have to say that Jesus paid the full penalty for the sins of his people. Because if he paid the full penalty for the sins of everyone, then everyone would be saved. And that is just not logically consistent. And I gave you like a three-part argument there. Do you have any... It might have been a little difficult to get your minds around. So can I clarify it in any way? Do you have any questions of clarification for that kind of like logical steps in that argument? Yeah. So some of them, like John Wesley, just believes in it because it's biblical, and he's like, I don't exactly know how that fits in my system. Most evangelicals today, who are kind of Arminian, of our, an Arminian, will, to their credit, truly to their credit, believe that Jesus took their penalty. It just doesn't quite fit logically, and that's, you know what? We'd rather them be biblical than consistent theologically. Amen? Always, I want you to... Go back to the Bible and say, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? We would just say that, there, that there's a logical inconsistency. Some who are most logically consistent, like this guy, is going to have a different understanding of what the atonement is. There are a number of different atonement theories out there. Um, this person, particular person takes the governmental view of the atonement. The governmental view of the atonement. And if you asked me, Matt Beham, can you explain exactly what the governmental view of the atonement is? I would say, oops, I should have read up a little bit more on that. Um, strike this from the record. <laughs> but I would encourage you to go and read up on some of the different views of the atonement. There are some views... So, but I, I think... I mean, generally speaking, you know... 
Um, I'm trying to kind of go back to my, all my general views of the atonement. Uh, generally speaking, Jesus died to show us an example of what it's like to lay down your life for people. And so, no, no, he's displaying the utmost of God's love. And so it's out of the utmost of God's love that is displayed on the cross that you now walk into his forgiveness and love. Um, that, and there are some good... There are some good ones, uh, or that, yeah, so the exemplar theory that Jesus is the perfect example of what it looks like to love. And we would actually, you know, I, I, as a Calvinist, I would say, yeah, you should lay down your life for people. That's what it looks like to be a Christian. It's just not, that's not the only theory of the atonement. And there are other theories of the atonement, like Christus Victor, like that Jesus on the cross disarmed the powers and rulers and authorities and, and exposed them to open shame. And I would say, yeah, absolutely. On the cross, Jesus took Satan's greatest scheme and he undermined him and said, hey, that terrible thing that you determined against me, I'm going to use that for the salvation of the world. So he exposes the, 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 the schemes of the devil to open shame. So there are actually a lot of atonement theories, and I say theories because whatever, it doesn't matter. There are a lot of atonement theories that totally work. In limited atonement, and what we're talking about particularly when it comes to your salvation, we need to hold on to this idea of penal substitutionary atonement. I think it's very biblical. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus never sinned. And then he became sin. He took all of the sin of his people on himself so that we might have righteousness. So that Jesus' perfect record of righteousness is now credited to our account. In Christ, he nailed our, the debt on the cross. So all of our debts are on the cross so that we don't have to pay for them anymore. Now Jesus pays for them so that we can go free. The Bible over and over and over again talks about Jesus being a substitute in our place. And if that's true then you have to go back to this logic and say, okay, if you paid for everything for your people, then that person is going to be saved. God's not going to punish you twice, right? So like, God's not going to... He would be unjust if God punishes Jesus for the sins of people and then, because you did not access that by faith, goes again and punishes you again for those sins in hell. It would be completely unjust. God cannot, he's not going to punish twice for sin. He's a just God. That might not have helped at all. Um, that's okay. So, why, wh- okay, wh- why is this important? Um, in, uh, in Hebrews, where do I have this? Oh, it's like Hebrews 9. Where, where do I have this? Oh, I'll get to it in a second. Okay, here's some reasons why it's important. Um, Jesus paid it all, all to him I know. You know that the lyrics of that hymn. That hymn. A lot of us are kind of asking, okay, did my faith actually secure Jesus' redemption for me? Was it my faith? Is it the strength of my faith that secured my salvation? When we look at what Jesus did, we can say, no, it wasn't the strength of my, of my faith that secured my salvation. It was the strength of Jesus' atonement that secured my salvation. So that's why Hebrews can say that Jesus, that Jesus eternally secured redemption for us. Eternally secured redemption for us. The illustration is this. Let's say you're falling off a cliff into perdition. You're falling off a cliff. You might have heard this before, and I think it's helpful. And let's say this side of the room, you see a branch. You all see a branch. This side of the room kind of has 
5% faith that that branch is going to hold you if you reach out to it and like, in order to be saved. So you got 5% faith that it's going to hold you. And let's say this side of the room has like, you're like 90% sure that if you reach out to that branch as you're falling off a cliff, it has the strength to hold you. So both sides of the room then, the 5% faith and the, and the 90% faith, you both reach out to that branch. Is it the power of your faith that's going to, hold, that's going to stop you from falling? What is it, what's the power that stops you from falling? The branch. So when you're thinking about your salvation, am I secure? The, the Bible is constantly getting you to take your eyes away from the power and strength of your own faith. There are times that you want to look at your faith and ask questions about it. But mostly you want to get your eyes off of how strong your faith is and get your eyes onto how strong Jesus' salvation is. Because it's not the power of your faith that saves you. It's the power of Jesus' eternal redemption that He has secured for you that saves you. When you look at Jesus' death on the cross, you don't look at Jesus' death on the cross and say, Jesus doesn't say at the very end of John's Gospel, in His death, it is almost finished. It's almost done. Now it's possible for them to be saved. What does he say? It is finished. Now, you also look at the cross and you don't say... And and, and here's the real sad... I, I think it's kind of sad for an Arminian position. The Arminian actually... He has to limit God's love theologically too in some way. Right? So, the Arminian can only say that when Jesus went to the cross, He went to the cross generally for people. Generally for people. There is no particular person that Jesus had in mind when he went to the cross. There's no particular person that Jesus had in mind to save. He just went and generally threw out life jackets to people. He just went and generally saved people. The Calvinist says no. It's not a general love that God has for His people. It is a specific and particular love for His people. When Jesus went to the cross, He had you in mind. When Jesus went to the cross, He had your debts in mind. It was not just generally paid for paying for things. It was that Jesus said, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to take this person's sin and this person's sin and this person's sin because I love this person and that person and this person. I particularly love my people and I will particularly go to the cross and die for them. That's what the Calvinist says. Yeah. Yeah. He loves them in a generalized way. But we, the Calvinist, the, yeah, the Calvinist says that God particularly loves His people. He generally loves all mankind because He doesn't just wipe out mankind for their sin right away. So there's a general love for all mankind. Um, and the Arminian has to say that there's a general love for all mankind. Right? The Calvinist can take one step further and say, but there is a particular love that God has for His people. Yeah. Yes and yes. That's what the Calvinist kind of has to say. I'm just going to... I'm not going to give you a caveat. I'm not going to tell you that I like it, necessarily. But I tell you what, it's better than God just having a generalized, whimsical love for me. Yep. 
Yeah, I mean, he... It's nice that he let them live for long enough to, like, you know, grow up and stuff. He didn't just wipe them... Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's simple. It's a great question. I mean, um... Yeah, why love people at all, right? Yeah, oh man, we're gonna, we love this one. Yeah, keep going. Because he gives them more than they actually deserve. Thank you for saying that well. Yeah. God loves everyone. He gives them much, he gives much better things. He gives people so much more than you deserve. We get so much more than we deserve. Life and breath, and in him we move and live and have our being. And in Christ, like that in God, that God has, you know, there's a specific children or people of God that God loves, and then there's a general people of people who actually in Acts 17 says are God's children. Now, not there would be children by natural generation, not by specific generation. That was too much. Um, but God does have a generalized love for mankind. They came from Adam. He created Adam. And he has a generalized love for them, but a particular love for his people. That particular love that brings them salvation. Yes. What does it mean for them? Practically, it means that people can lead, some people, not all people, can lead relatively decent lives. <laughs> you were still getting into the, we're still getting into the problem of perdition, right? The big problem of perdition is coming crashing in to a person's life, and that is making us really uncomfortable. But we, people can live generally decent lives. Um, you've got a problem in every system because people ultimately die and get eaten by worms anyways. So the question is, is there, is there hope at all for humanity? And we say in God's love, yes, there is hope for not all, but some of humanity. Yeah. Are you going to try to say it better? I would love you to. It's okay. Yeah, thank you for asking that. So how would we wait, uh, relate to the Great Commission? So, I, I, I mean, I think some, somebody has said, you know, all people who care about the lost are Calvinists on their knees, right? So if you, if you want someone to be saved, if you desire for your parents to be saved or, or your friend to be saved, you're going to relate to them as a Calvinist would because you're going to be praying that God would work in their life, right? You're going to be praying that God would work in their life. And that's, that's really important because God is the one, ultimately, who has to work in their life and not you. If you, go and, if you go off and try to tell people about Jesus, and this is what Finney and this is what some people did, is they would boil down evangelism to, how can I, how can I almost manipulate people into believing this? Because if it ultimately rests on their decision, then I've got to find ways to have an anxious bench and to make them feel really bad and to force them in some way to believe because it's about manipulating their heart and life to change. Because the ultimate decider is not God, but man, either my ability in evangelism or their intelligence or faith or humility in conversion. And that's just not, that's just not what the Bible says. The Bible says salvation is of the Lord. And so we can walk confidently into evangelism knowing that God has a people for himself, and he loves to use you in evangelism. He loves to use you, and so you can say, wow, that, that person is so far gone. Oh, but he's not so far gone to God because we are all so far gone. 
Uh, does that kind of answer your question? It gives us confidence and hope in evangelism rather than uh, fear, manipulation, and uh, not knowing. Yeah. And I need to move on after this. Mm-hmm. How does he love unbelievers? He gives them life that doesn't just stop before they're born. I, I, there's no great answer to that question. There's no great answer. The Arminian has this problem too, though. Can I, can I say this? The Arminian has this problem too. Any, anybody who's a Christian has this problem. This is not a problem for Calvinism. This is a problem for Christianity. Why? Because if you have God who is God, He knows the beginning from the end. And He's created people who would receive Him and people who wouldn't receive Him. So if you are a Christian who believes God knows everything, then God is still on the hook in some way. Right? Because, God, why did you create little Jimmy knowing that little Jimmy wouldn't accept you? Sorry if there's anyone in here named Jimmy. Right? So this is not a problem for Calvinism. This is a problem for everybody. What Calvinism does is it says, oh, that's what the Bible says. And oh, there's something better than general love. There's particular love. Okay, I need to move on from this question, but those are good. Those are really good clarifying questions. Because I've got ten minutes to do two points of Calvinism. Okay. What we did was the most... I think what we did flows most importantly. Let's go on to Irresistible Grace... Um, I'm going to give you, uh, before we give a formal definition, no, I'll give you the formal definition, I have to. The Holy Spirit never fails to bring salvation to those sinners whom God the Father elected and God the Son redeemed. Putting it in another way, all those whom God has chosen for eternal life will come to faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. All those whom God has chosen will come to faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. So theologically speaking, this obviously flows. God elects some. Jesus dies for some. The Holy Spirit brings salvation to some. Okay? Now, the reason that this is important is because in yourself you would resist God all the time. You would, because you're dead and you want your sin. You know who you're like? You're like Frodo. You're like Frodo. You've got this thing called sin and it's represented by the ring of power. And that sin you know is killing you and it is hurting you and it is bad for you. And you don't like it and ring rates are after you trying to kill you. And you travel and you want to get rid of it. Because we have a weird relationship to our sin. We know it's not good for us. You want to get rid of it. And so you travel your whole life to the very fires of Mount Doom with your sin. And right at the moment when you should throw your sin away, you take the ring and you say, the ring is mine. And you put it on and you keep it. You double down on it. In yourself, it doesn't matter how much you know you are in a terrible state apart from the grace of God. If you were left to your own devices and you saw the glory of God without your heart being transformed, you would still say, I don't want you and turn away. So, God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with He loved us, has to make us alive has to make us alive. There has to be a power outside of ourselves to change us. <laughs> so in so continuing the Lord of the Rings analogy, Gollum is the power outside of ourselves who has to bite off your finger and jump and <laughs> jump into the fire. Now thankfully we have a much more benevolent outside love called the Holy Spirit who changes our hearts. He's not Jesus, he's the Holy Spirit. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Have this debate later. Um, right? So, so this power outside of you has to come and transform you. Because in yourself, you would never transform yourself. So irresistible grace uses the, the analogies that I'm going to get into really quickly are regeneration, rebirth. John says, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. You must be born again. How did you, uh, what steps did you take towards your natural birth? <laughs> when you were the glint in your father's eye, you didn't take any steps towards your natural birth, Right? And Jesus says, hey, you know how birth is a really... It's, birth is a really good analogy. If you're going to become a Christian at all, the Holy Spirit blows where He wills, and He has to come into your life and regenerate you, change your heart, renew you. So Ezekiel uh, 36 says God has to take that heart that's calloused and hard, and He has to remove it from you, and He has to put a new heart within you, and He has to sprinkle clean water on you so that you will be clean, and He has to put His Spirit within you so that you will be truly changed. And when that change happens... You freely walk into that new life. You really do. In fact, for the very first time you've become free because the Holy Spirit takes the chains of sin and death off of you and opens the prison cell and you have a decision. You have a decision. Do I stay in prison? (laughs) Or do I walk into freedom? And like uh, the analogy I used was, you know, you've been eating moldy bread of your sin your whole life. And the Holy Spirit shows up and renews your heart and all of a sudden you turn and you see this enormous and wonderful feast of the finest foods that is just waiting for you with this fellowship with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And never, ever, in a million years, a hundred times out of a hundred, you would never say, I would prefer the moldy bread. When you see Christ as who He is for the first time, you would walk into the feast that God has prepared for you. So if I'm going to use... uh, C.S. Lewis's conversion story. Um, he, this is what he says about his conversion story. You know, he's an atheist. He was an atheist university professor, and one day he said this without words, or he's reflecting back on his conversion. Without words, and I think almost without images, a fact about myself was somehow pointed out to me. I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shutting something out, or if you like, that I was wearing some stiff clothing like corsets or even a suit of armor, as if I were a lobster. I felt myself being there and then given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor or keep it on. Neither choice was presented as a duty. No threat or promise was attached to either. Though I knew that to open the door or to take off the corset meant the incalculable, I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. I say I chose, yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. When Jesus, when Jesus sends His Spirit and the Spirit renews you and redeems you and changes your heart, you freely now walk into the freedom that God has always had from you, for you. The, the Son has come to bring you freedom and all that He has done for you means that you will be free indeed. You'll be free indeed. And so the renewal and change of your heart, then accompanied to that is the free walking into the grace of God. Now sometimes it feels like you're resisting the Spirit. Remember, we're looking at these things from a God's eye view, so to speak, a theological point of view, which mashes human life into kind of like a little circle. The way that these things fall out is narratologically. Over the course of your life, you might look back and say, man, there were so many people that I resisted who were trying to bring me to faith. 
right? Like my grandma who always brought me to church, my friend who kept saying they were praying for me, and I was like, please stop praying for me, I'm tired of you saying that. But over time, it's like they wore, wore you down, and then all of a sudden you were converted. So maybe it felt like you were resisting the Holy Spirit for a while. But God always, in His goodness and His timing, He's not going to be thwarted. And He will redeem all of those whom He has chosen to redeem. Irresistible grace. Uh, another great example of it, in the couple of minutes that I have left, talk about perseverance of the saints. Lazarus is dead and he's in the tomb. And if there's not something, something spiritual that changes Lazarus, and Jesus just says, Lazarus, come out, he just doesn't come out. He stays dead. But because there's some powerful recreating work of Jesus when he says, Lazarus, come out, we know that God has raised Lazarus from the dead so that he freely walks out. The powerful working of God has to precede your free walk into the light. And so God changes you. He causes you to be reborn. He regenerates your heart so that you can see the love and kindness of your Savior. Uh, R.C. Sproul says, Unless God changes the disposition of my sinful heart, I will never choose to cooperate with grace or embrace Christ in faith. Saving grace does not offer liberation, it liberates. Saving grace does not merely offer regeneration, it regenerates. This is what makes grace so gracious. God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Okay. There's, lot, there's some biblical evidence there that I think is, t- is, uh, is printed out. I've kind of said some of them, like the Ezekiel one. The Deuteronomy 30, uh, verse 6 one says that God has to circumcise our hearts, that God has to change us from the inside out. The 1 Corinthians verse says that an unregenerate person can never understand the Spirit, and so the Spirit has to do something to make that person understand, basically. Um, And yeah, read those on your own. You're just going to need to read them on your own. Uh, Acts 16, 14, the Lord opened Lydia's Lydia's heart to understand that grace always precedes faith, that it's a gift of God, so that grace comes and changes you and you respond in faith. That's what what irresistible grace is talking about. Finally, last but not least, in the 30 seconds that we have left, perseverance of the saints, all... The elect in Christ are not only redeemed by Christ and renewed by the Holy Spirit, they're also kept in faith by the power of God. In other words, true believers in Christ will persevere until the end. Doesn't, God doesn't begin something that He doesn't complete or that He won't complete. So, Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will surely bring it about to the completion in the day of Christ. Philippians 1.6 God begins the good work, will He complete it? He begins the work of your salvation, will He bring it to pass so that you'll ultimately be saved? Yes. Romans 8.30, this chain of redemption that Paul is speaking about, takes us from eternity past to eternity future when he says this, And those whom God has predestined, right? that's the you, He has also called, that's the I, And those whom He has called, He's also justified. So that's by faith, and we are justified, declared right by God. And those whom He justifies, He also glorifies. That's that day of our salvation when all things are made new and we have these glorified bodies and we're rejoicing forever with God in heaven. That the one who 
elected you in eternity past is also the one who will bring it to completion in the day of the coming of our Lord. What God begins in you, He will complete at the very end. Uh, in John, again, we're going, let's go back one more time to this passage in John 10, um, 27 through 30. Let's, uh, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. It's not just that God, it's not that He just gives life and I hope that maybe it'll happen to pass, that it, they'll have eternal life. No, it's that the ones whom Jesus dies for, His sheep, He will also give eternal life, life forever. And what? They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one, so I've seen this, seen this uh, illustration that, there, that you, if you have been saved, are in Jesus' hand, and you're in the Father's hand, and you're eternally secure. No one, not even yourself, will be able to snatch them out of the hands of God. Those whom God has elected, He has also redeemed. Those whom He has redeemed, He has also irresistibly changed. Those who He has changed, He will also glorify and you will persevere to the very end. The kicker, the reason that we've talked about this, there's just, I'm just going to give you two reasons then I'll let you go. The reason, the two big reasons that we talk about this is I want you to see God as God. God is not primarily your... Primarily, He is. But He's not primarily a friend or an influencer, someone who helps you on tests. God is primarily the God of God and the Lord of, the Lord, of Lords. And you like... You're like Hamlet in Shakespeare's play. God, God has written a story for you. He is so far above you that He's written a story for you that He promises eternal redemption and security for you. And it's because you know that God has secured your redemption from, from beginning to end that therefore He can become a friend in distress, a lover of your soul, someone who can be near you in times of trouble. As long as God is God and is God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, you can know that you are secure eternally and He can be that friend for you in times of trouble. Calvinism ultimately is about the assurance of your salvation. That you can rest in God's completed work and you don't have to focus on how much you're believing to hold on to God, but rather you can focus on how much God has done for you so that He holds on to you. I want you to see God as God. He is ultimately the one who is free to do what He will and to worship Him as God. And then because of that, to rest secure in the redemption that He has done for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this class. Thank you for these students who are wrestling with these things, who are asking good questions. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be near to them and help them in their struggles and their frustrations, uh, but ultimately to bring them to you uh, through your word. Would we all embrace the word of God? the implanted seed of our salvation, and come to know you better and worship you more and find joy in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.